Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Family is my beloved Alpha Kappa Alpha, our divine nine, and my HBCU brothers and sisters. That's audio from then-Senator Kamala Harris accepting the nomination to run as vice president. What does she have in common with Senator Raphael Warnock, writer Toni Morrison, and filmmaker Spike Lee? They're all graduates of historically Black colleges and universities. These storied institutions have dominated recent headlines and generated interest from philanthropists like Mackenzie Scott to high school students eager to take the next step on their journey. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. HBCUs represent just 3% of all colleges in the U.S., but they graduate nearly 20% of Black students. A recent study from Stanford found that local increases in hate crimes lead to higher enrollment at HBCUs. These schools become communities where young Black students can feel supported, encouraged, and safe. Later, we'll hear how and why historically Black colleges and universities came to be in the U.S., But first, we'll meet a recent graduate of an HBCU and welcome back a professor who's been on the show before. Dr. Melanie Price is Endowed Professor of Political Science at Prairie View A&M University in Texas. She's the author of The Race Whisperer, Barack Obama and the Political Uses of Race. And most recently, she wrote an article for Elle called HBCUs Are Our Past and Our Future. Maya Young is a 2020 graduate of Prairie View, and she's also a former student of Dr. Price. Maya, Dr. Price, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You know, for those of us who are familiar with historically Black colleges and universities, we know the important role that they play in society in producing leaders in every field, from STEM to medicine to public service and law. But most of the American public is just starting to really understand or see the fullness of those universities as something that has been such a long institution within Black communities. So Maya, I want to start with you because you are a recent graduate. What is it about HBCUs that attracted you when you were deciding where to take your college journey? Well, honestly, um, I was not planning on going to HPCU at all. Like it was not in my top 10, my top 15. It wasn't even anywhere on my list. Um, but my parents are both HBCU alums. My mom went to Prairie View as well. And then my dad is from TSU. So there's a lot of rivalry in the house. Texas but, Southern, um, not Tennessee State. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Thank you for the clarification. I was going to ask. There's a lot of Panthers and Tigers over here. But um 
I think that I'd always been kind of drawn to PV because my mom, like I said, she went there, but she was also just very active when she went there in track and um, just in like a bunch of different things. So I was always visiting PV. I was always there. It felt like home. So when the time came for me to just uh, choose a school, I was going to go to St. John's in New York. And then I realized how homesick I am. And I would come back like the week later complaining about just everything, how cold it was. And I love seeing snow, but being in snow just wouldn't work for me and I just would have complained the whole time my mom would have been like I told you so so I was just like let me just stay home and maybe I'll transfer and then I went to the late like the the latest orientation that was at PV and I just fell in love with the marching storm which is our marching band and the fountain even though it's not that grand I just I love the scene in the fountain and I was like oh I have to go here and then it just it just felt like it's just like that click that you feel like you get there and it's like yeah I have to go here. Melanie, there is this enthusiasm in Maya's voice as she talks about her time at Prairie View. And you wrote this article for Elle and you captured that enthusiasm that people feel when they are connected to an HBCU. You made the decision to go back to your alma mater to leave us here on the cold, snowy East Coast and go back home. So that sense of home that Maya mentioned was formative for you as well. How do you see your role as a professor at an HBCU and that connection to students like Maya, who may have been a little unsure at first, but walk away from this experience feeling so connected. Yeah, um, I was loving hearing Maya talk because it reminded me of when I was an 18-year-old in the 90s. You know, I was heavily influenced at that time by a different world. And, you know, the Cosby Show in a Different World did a, a humongous job of introducing people to historically Black colleges and encouraging more of them to attend. And in fact, you saw a spike during the Cosby Show in a Different World and enrollments in historically Black colleges. And so I was sort of on that wave. And I just remember, you know, wanting that experience and wanting to um, feel what the, the very thing that Maya described. But also, you know, I was a first generation college student and um, my, I'm the youngest of six. I have a twin sister, we're the youngest of six, but we were the first ones in our families to actually live in a dorm right? Not the first ones to go to college, but the first ones to go away, even though it's like an hour, <laughs> but it was a way still away. It was a way still. And it was a big deal for my entire family. And everyone was so excited when we moved in and people would come to visit us, you know, and be able to stay in the dorms. It was like an entire family um, experience. And so when I went off, you know, I taught at Wesleyan in Connecticut that a lot of your listeners be familiar with and then I taught at Rutgers, I, I had the same teaching feeling that I have here. But those kids, um, they were from very different worlds from me, right? Lots of boarding school kids. I had never met a person who had gone to boarding school in my life until I started teaching at Wesleyan. And But these kids were a lot like me. They were from the, at Prairie View, a lot like me. They're from the same you know, they're from Texas. They're from the same parts of Houston that I'm from. You know, they're, they're, uh, they read like me, but not just that, you know, my nephew went to Prairie View, uh, my sister and I, my niece, my nephew's wife, and I have a cousin there now. So we have a family tradition. And so it's also the first job that I have where literally I'm walking across campus and I literally walk up to family. Right. And so that changes all of the emotions that you feel where it's not necessarily a job anymore. 
mean, it is still a job. I mean, I have to be paid, but it's not a job in the sense that there's so much purpose built into it to sort of try to replicate the experience that I had that felt so special. Now it's my job to give that to students like Maya. So I didn't attend an HBCU, but I feel that I am HBCU adjacent. My husband is a very proud alum. You know, two of his sisters are also alums of the same institution, Virginia State. But when I think about the professors that I've had in my life, the teachers that I've had who have had the greatest impact on me, probably 95% are graduates of HBCUs. And I think it speaks to, as you mentioned, Melanie, it's not just a job, but it's a calling and a purpose to be able to connect. And one of the ways that you have now responded to that calling is that you are the inaugural director of the Ruth J. Simmons Center. Talk to us about that center and how the work of the center will fit into, as you say, that mission and that calling and that connection to community. So, um, you know, we all in the, George Floyd is from Houston, I guess I'll start there. And so his death was pretty, uh, it was nationally important, but it was also important for the city of Houston. Um, He was from one of the traditionally black communities, third ward here uh, where I currently live. And so, you know, it, so there was lots of coverage because his family was actually still here in Houston, right? And so Houston dealt with that um, on a very sort of visceral level. And uh, our president, Bruce Simmons decided that we were going to respond to that in very real ways. And so she came up with a set of prescriptions of what we were going to do. And one of those things was to open a center for race and justice where we eventually received a donation for it to be named after her. So it's the Ruth J. Simmons Center for Race um, and Justice. And in it, we're going to do research. Uh, We are going to offer policy papers. We're going to have an activist in residence who will be on campus working with our students. But we'll also have, you know, a diversity and inclusion arm of it where we will help facilitate with organizations, corporations, um, uh, educational institutions that need to do work around facilitating diversity um, and uh, making sure that their environments are more inclusive. We sort of have the working, this is our working proposition. We train these amazing students and Maya, you know, is awesome, but she's just one of them. We have many, many, many um, students not quite like Maya, but we have many great students. And so, you know, we train them well, we nurture them, we affirm the fact that there are no ceilings to the things that they can do. And then we send them out into the world. And we have decided that what we're also going to be in the business of is making sure that that world that we send them out into is a more hospitable place. And so our center will do the kinds of research and training needed to make sure that these jewels, these things, these things, these people that we have created, helped to create, that we have worked with, that we have collaborated with on our campus, where we have can literally say that we have changed the financial, the educational trajectory of families, that we're not going to send them out into places without having done some of the work that meant to make sure that they are actually entering a world that has a better racial future than the one they have now. That emphasis on the holistic experience and the holistic change for students also challenges them to take what they're learning on campus or in the classroom and apply it 
to the real world. And Maya, as a political science graduate, that is something that you didn't wait to do until after graduation. You were doing it as a student. So I know that you've been actively involved in voter registration drives. There's also a lawsuit against the county. Uh, The lawsuit is called Allen v. Waller, and it questions how and why the county restricted student access to polling locations. And we know that's not unique to Prairie View. We've seen it in places like North Carolina, which have a heavy population of HBCU students. But there's a long history there at Prairie View. Talk to us about why it was important for you to take the things that you've learned or the experiences that you've had in order to make things better for other students and residents. Uh, I feel like it was one of those things where, you know, you see something and it's like, I have to do something. Like, you can't go on knowing that you just, like, you you know exactly what the problem is. You know kind of the steps to take to solve it. And it's just kind of like you're standing there having that bystander effect. And I just, I think I couldn't do that. One, because I know that my mentors and the people around me wouldn't let me. They were very, very forceful. And they're like, yeah, you're going to come with us to a march or two or to a city council meeting or two. And then next thing I know, I was going to all of them and bringing other people along. Um, but I just, I knew I had to because, I mean, obviously it was very personal to me. I was going to be a first-time voter. My friends are going to be first-time voters. Um, but then also they were going to be first-time voters after me as well. So, like, if this could happen to me, then what's stopping it from happening to the class of 2022 or the class of 2023 or so on and so forth? Um, and so I figured that it was time. And I knew that I could. And I knew that I had support from the student body, but also, like, from professors. Um, even though Dr. Price didn't get there until my senior year, she was super supportive of everything that we did. Like, I love Dr. Price. She's amazing. But she just really pushed us. And like, really, like she said earlier, just really emphasize that there are no ceilings that we cannot break. Like the world is ours. And so just kind of like having that support system from the school, but from the residents and even sometimes like Prairie View City residents that are not students, it was just wonderful to have. So it was a full support system all around. Maya, what were the kinds of obstacles that you encountered? You said, you know, you were excited, first time voting, being able to do that. But what were the barriers to you being able to walk into a polling place and exercise your ability to vote? Um, so when I got to PV, there were different like voting one-on-ones and different uh, different things I could go to, but there were never any things that were like taught in depth to me. So I was still very confused on what to do and how to do it. And I was registered and everything and I was helping out with it because I was like, yeah, why not? Like, oh, I'm not doing anything. Um, yeah. <laughs> and when the time came, they came to us and they were like, so we turned in like you guys' applications. Uh, but for some reason, the school is divided into two precincts. And so even though we live on one campus, share one address, probably live like minutes away from each other, we're in two different zip codes. And so of course the student body didn't know that when registering us. And so the county decided to tell us this probably like days before the applications were due, which is a huge, huge inconvenience because thousands and thousands of students were registered. And to re-register all those students in the time that we had, which was days, was very impossible. Um, And so I realized that and I was like, that doesn't seem like that's okay, like that doesn't seem very right. And then knowing that they cut back on uh, early voting days, I was like, that's not right either. Like, I don't know too much about voting. I'm not a voting connoisseur, but that doesn't seem very- I know enough to know, that doesn't sound- Yeah, like that doesn't seem very okay. And um, I think we just, we realized something was wrong. We kept questioning 
uh, those in power about it. And they just, we just kept getting it met with the same answers. Like, this is just how it is, or this is just that, or it's always been like that. And it's like, well, just because it's always been like that doesn't mean that it's right. And um, we just kept really just applying pressure and putting, pa- like putting pressure on those in power. In, in response to that, we hosted various things. Like we pull up to the polls and we had student volunteers drive other students to off-campus voting locations. We hosted a student march on the day of election day. We had different things set up in place so that even though this is happening, we're not going to stand for it. And that just set the tone for the next two years. That's Maya Young, graduate of Prairie View A&M University, along with Dr. Melanie Price, professor of political science at Prairie View in Texas. When we come back, we'll talk more about how HBCUs emphasize activism, and we'll hear about how these historical institutions got their start. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Later, we'll hear more about the importance of historically Black colleges and universities in Black communities and for the nation. But now we continue our conversation with Dr. Melanie Price, professor of political science at Prairie View A&M University in Texas. Last month, she wrote an article for Elle called HBCUs Are Our Past and Our Future. Maya Young also joins us. She's a 2020 graduate of Prairie View where she studied political science. HBCUs have a long tradition of taking a stand on political and social matters, especially issues like voting access and voting rights. Last year, we saw record numbers of voters in the presidential election, but we also saw major efforts to block certain communities from getting to the polls. Ask Melanie to talk about how that's playing out where she lives and where she works. Right. So I live in Houston, but Prairie View is not in Houston. I like to be very clear about that to everybody. You know, it is outside of Houston. It is rural. It is in a predominantly rural county um, and a predominantly white county. And it's been there for nearly 150 um, years. This is true of lots of historically Black colleges in the South. Lots of them are in small towns like this that are in counties that are not necessarily reflective of them. And so the, the, the desire... When you have these kids, we have nearly 10,000 students and they're all there and people see them, especially rural Republican whites, see them as a democratic voting bloc, which they are, that can change the trajectory of county politics. And that makes them fearful and that fearfulness leads to voter suppression techniques that are then allowed by the state which is already engaged in a larger statewide suppression of votes of people of color, which used to have some limits on it by the Voting Rights Act, which was essentially killed in a lot of ways by Shelley V. Holder in 2013. And so I should also say that when I was a sophomore in college at Prairie View, 19 students were indicted for voter fraud for allegedly voting illegally in the count, in Waller County. And so this is a generation, intergenerational, a cross-generation, cross-time um, battle that we've had with this county. This isn't the first lawsuit. Um, Maya, I think, was sort of underplaying her role in that. She should, the thing that she didn't talk about, I love bragging on these kids, is that she testified in federal court. And so right before the November 2020 election, she and her fellow students were testifying in federal court about violations that had occurred in 2018 that were yet to be resolved. And so those kids were voting in 2020 during a pandemic 
during an economic crisis, during a time when they're displaced as students, but also under the shadow of having their rights already been violated but not resolved two years before. And so what these kids are doing um, now is a part of a legacy, but it's also really important because what they're what they're doing is under much graver circumstances in many ways than when I was there. You know, I was there when it was politically, when people were would not, the racial hostility and belligerence was sort of, you had to shield that. You weren't allowed to be as openly racist as you're allowed to be now. Um, it was a wonderful economy. Black people um, in the middle class were on the rise and that's not the case that they're in now. And so they're fighting a similar battle but it's not the same battle. And it's important to know that these kids are fighting but they shouldn't be fighting alone. So Maya, how do we get the word out then to have people understand the magnitude of what you were fighting against as a young person to say, this is not right. I am going to do something because I know it is not just my experience. And as you said, I want to make things better. We saw in 2020, the amazing power of young people to stand up and say, no longer enough in a number of areas. How do we connect young people with these stories of voting, why voting is important so that they can then lead that charge? Uh, I think it's just by highlighting stories like Prairie View. Like I think uh, the, the quote that people don't know what they don't know. Like I, I think people weren't aware that Prairie View has a history that it's always had until we kind of highlighted it or until it was in the news or until it was on these big, um, really big just sites that they could see and were like, okay, I know this is happening, but I didn't know that it was so close to me. Even people in Houston didn't even, weren't aware of, of Prairie View's voter suppression problem until it became known, whether it was through the pandemic or through this uh, lawsuit, there are just so many things. So I think just continuous awareness one of the things we're doing in the center is we're starting what we're calling an HBCU Voting Rights Lab. And it's a digital um, humanities project where we're going to collect oral histories and stories of students across the generations at Prairie View. But we also want to eventually expand this to other HBCUs. That is to create a digital platform where we document and archive these stories so that people have a place to go when they hear about um, these kinds of activities. And we want to engage other HBCUs to join us in sort of, you know, telling their stories, finding their alum who have participated along the way in this process and being able to talk about the ways in which we have been engaged in this battle, often as a Southern story, which is why people, look, people think that the story of, of Southern politics for the last 40 years has been Republicans. And thus they don't focus in on the things that are happening. It's part of the reason why I think voter suppression has been able to thrive because uh, Democrats primarily didn't see the South in play. And so they weren't gonna win. And so there was no point to focus on what was happening in the South and thus this was allowed to fester. And so we're gonna work on that. Our goal is to thread the needle between um, the civil rights movement and Kamala Harris. Like that's how we talk about HBCUs. We have these kids who integrated lunch counters and then Kamala Harris popped up. But there was lots of politics in between and we're going to talk about that politics. Maya, what's the future then? What's the future for Maya, Maya Young as a graduate of Prairie View within the broader story of the future of HBCUs? 
I'll say I, I'm really biased because I talk about PV to anyone who will listen, but um, there are so many other people like me at Prairie View. Like, it's such a unique thing that I was not alone in, like, my activist efforts. I had friends who did these. We are each other. And so um, I think it's just about kind of having, I don't want to say more Mayas, but just having more students who are who are out there. And then just seeing that, um, like, just because your work starts with Prairie View doesn't end with Prairie View. And so, like, I know that Prairie View is, and I'm very thankful for it to be kind of my center where I found kind of everything. Like, I, I knew what happened and I knew how to get there. And then just kind of expanding that into community organizing post-grad. So I think it's just about just knowing um, what problems there are and knowing how to fix them in a way that is beneficial to all people. So one of her fellow activists, one of her fellow activists ran for city council and Prairie View and Maya was the campaign manager for it. That's the thing that's really cool about this. And she's 20. That's the thing that makes my job wonderful, right? That's the thing that makes me, I'm smiling ear from ear to ear, like your listeners can't see it, but I'm so happy right now to watch her talk about the work that she's she's doing. And I think Maya, with all of the uncertainty for many college students, regardless of where they go to school or the type of school that they attend, with all of that uncertainty to hear from a graduate that they felt they, they received everything that they needed within that college experience to not just get through it and to graduate, but to set a foundation for what they want to do and that they can explore all of the areas that bring them joy and connect them is fantastic. And it is my hope that more college students will have that too. Melanie, what about you? What do you see as that future for HBCUs, that sort of post Kamala Harris uh, through line for HBCUs? So, you know, HBCUs represent less than 10% of the colleges, but we graduate a third of all STEM major, Black STEM majors. We graduate um, many of the, uh, the majority of African-Americans who will go on to be doctors. You know, in the state of Texas, we graduate um, the majority of the Black nurses and the majority of the Black teachers here. And so we are not just sort of, um, um, you know, doing a small job here, we're doing a huge job in educating African-Americans. You know, 70% of HBCU students are first-generation college students and over 60% are Pell, Pell Grant uh, recipients. And so we are, um, often these are kids who were underserved in their K through 12 education. And so we take them wherever we find them and then we, turn, we help them turn themselves into whatever it is they want to be. And so the future, the future of HBCUs is really about other people learning how we do that job and helping provide us with better resources to do it. People are paying lots of attention to HBCUs right now. There's lots of money flowing into HBCUs right now. And what I hope is that what is happening on most of these campuses and what I know is happening on our campus is that we're asking people to make multi-year commitments to us that is not just in this moment where corporations need to make themselves look like they understand that Black lives matter, but when this moment is over and we know from history that there are these moments where people are focused on racial justice and then they go away and then they come back. We hope in this moment that you make multi-year serious commitments um, to our students and to the work that we're doing and not just token commitments, but actually say, look, we're worthy of a Bloomberg Institute. We're worthy of, of McKinsey Scott money, we're, which we did get. We're, wor we're worthy of McKinsey Scott money. We're, and not just because you are doing us a 
because we're a charity, but because we're doing an important service to the entire country, right? And there are more Kamala's, there are more Stacey Abrams, there are more Raphael Warnock's than we can count. But oftentimes our students, unlike other college students, on our campus sometimes, our students sometimes have to sit out a semester because they can't come up with a thousand dollars. And they, their family does not have enough wealth, enough savings to get them the thousand dollars. And what we're saying is we can make you a Kamala Harris for if we had had a thousand dollars to give them. And so we want you to take a look at us and not just see deficits and not just see the ways that we don't perform like schools that have endowments that are a hundred times ours. Look at the, the, the minimal amount of resources that we actually have, the maximal amount of output that we have when, when you look at our students. I thank you for the reminder that if you want to support Black lives, you have to fund Black futures. And how HBCUs are doing that and giving us not just Raphael Warnock's, but also giving us Maya Young's and those yet to come. Melanie Price is endowed professor of political science at Prairie View A&M University. Maya Young is a recent graduate of Prairie View, and we are excited to see where her journey will take her next. Thank you both for joining Disrupted. Thank you all so much. (laughs) Coming up. We'll hear more about HBCUs as an integral part of higher education. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. The majority of HBCUs are located in the South, and it makes sense given the geographic concentration of Black communities and the historical development of these institutions. But in 1831, New Haven, Connecticut had the opportunity to be home of the first HBCU in the Northeast. A Black minister named Peter Williams joined with a white abolitionist named Simeon Jocelyn to announce a plan to start a Black college. When the mayor of New Haven heard about it, he wasn't happy and stopped it from happening. Here's more of the story from a People's History of Dixwell walking tour. It's voiced by students of the Metropolitan Business Academy in New Haven. The mayor formed a 13-member committee against the idea for a black college. The committee of lawyers, Yale faculty, and members of the New Haven elite argued against the college. In their own words, they wrote, The establishment of a college in the same place to educate the colored population is incompatible with the prosperity, if not the existence of the present institutions of learning. It would be destructive to the best interest of the city. In other words, they revealed their racism by claiming that a black college would damage Yale and New Haven. They went on to say that a black college would be dangerous because it would destabilize the institution of slavery and bring the country one step closer to abolition. With a vote of 700 to 4, the idea for a Negro college was turned down. Can you imagine how much better and how much different New Haven would be if our city was home to one of the first HBCUs in the country? Can you imagine? The first African-American school of higher education was founded a few years later in 1837. To talk more about that history, we're joined now by Dr. Jelani Favors. He's Associate Professor of History at Clayton State University and author of Shelter in a Time of Storm, How Black Colleges Fostered Generations of Leadership and Activism. 
Ask Jelani to take us back to the beginning, to the very first historically Black college known then as the Institute for Colored Youth in Pennsylvania. When you look at the construction of, of this institution in Philadelphia, we also have to place in context what's actually going on in America in the 1830s. Um, not only are we seeing an aggressive defense of slavery um, that's emerging uh, within the academy, <laughs> but we also see an aggressive defense of white supremacy. Uh, and so as the book suggests, um, these were indeed shelters in a time of storm. Uh, we must remember that it was illegal even to teach uh, enslaved Africans to, to read um, throughout the Deep South. And for those Black folks who were in the North, they were fighting to remain free and again, having their, their humanity questioned. So uh, when this institution begins in 1837, it is a radical concept, a radical idea. Um, prior to this, you had institutions just like the African Free School that existed in New York. Um, so there were attempts to, to create um, headway right, into to educating Black folks. But from the very beginning, it was very clear that these institutions were going to be going to be doing a different type of education. Um, they would not be propping up the concepts of white supremacy. They would not be, certainly not be propping up the idea that slavery should exist. The students who attended these institutions were being taught to see themselves as cultural and political change agents, um, to use their voice to articulate for a, a end to slavery, but also uh, for an end to white supremacy. And that's exactly what they did. And so the, again, the book begins in 1837, looking at the Institute for Colored Youth, looking at people like Ebenezer Bassett, like Fanny Jackson Coppin, like Octavius Caddo. Uh, um, these were activists <laughs> and, and they were also educators. And, and that's something that certainly is, is um, specific to the HBCU experience. That idea that for Cheney to be created in Pennsylvania in 1837, before some of the protections that we now think of were embedded in the Constitution in order to support students of color, was, as you said, an act of resistance. Who were the students that were attending those early HBCUs to understand that by going to a college to seek higher education or access to education in general could actually be challenging their safety as well? Well, you know, many of them were the sons and daughters of, of former slaves themselves. And, and so um, they arrive into these institutions um, with, with the idea that um, they understand the preciousness of, of liberty. They understand um, the value of, of freedom. Uh, and, and so when they enter into these institutions, um, you know, that's one of, the thing that, one of the things that I think is special about black colleges. It simply wasn't about, um, you know, learning Greek and Latin and, and science and chemistry. But as I argue in the book, it's about a second curriculum that emerged within these institutions. And that second curriculum was, um, buoyed by the ideas, buoyed of the, by the ideas of, of race consciousness and idealism and cultural nationalism. And that's aided by not simply the, the faculty members who are teaching at these institutions, but also this endless parade of, of activists and leaders who are making their way into these institutions to speak to students. Imagine being a student at the Institute for Colored Youth and Henry Harlan Garnett shows up and Frederick Douglass shows up. Right. And these are your, you know, these are the folks who, who, who you are rubbing shoulders with and who are talking to you about the freedom dreams of black folks and, and what you need to be doing to engage in the deconstruction of white supremacy. That's what this space um, was really all about. And, and so it's, it's a very unique space. And, and for the students who were arriving there, 
even in the antebellum period, uh, and, and of course, even through reconstruction, um, it was a, a, a space which was racially charged, which was politically charged, and it made all the difference in the early civil rights movement. I want to talk more about that second curriculum, because one of the things that often happened in segregated schools where Black students were taught by Black teachers is that they were charged to remember, yes, you can learn Greek, you can learn Latin, you can learn all of those traditional areas, but learning has to be more holistic. So talk more about how the second curriculum built upon that idea of having students being able to navigate multiple areas of being learned at the same time. You know, I think that the freedom of Black folks was literally predicated upon that idea. As I said before, you know, these were institutions that from the start, they understood that they were educating a group of, of, of young people who the dominant society had deemed inferior, um, they had deemed uh, um, uh, incapable of adjusting and, and integrating into society. I mean, th these ideas go back to Thomas Jefferson and so many of the other so-called founding fathers who espoused on these concepts, who wrote on these concepts, who taught these concepts within predominantly white institutions. And so black colleges became a very radically different space. And so when we talk about the second curriculum, again, I define that through race consciousness and idealism and cultural nationalism. These are the three concepts which, which were brimming within these institutions. I talk about this in the introduction of the book of uh, James Weldon Johnson arriving at, at Morehouse College and saying uh, in his, his memoirs that, you know, everything we talked about dealt with race. You know, and again, that's that's in a science class, that's in a math class, that's, you know, as, as, as students at HBCUs often refer to it as the yard, right? You know, we're just on the yard, just hanging out, and people began to talk about race and, and how they could see themselves, again, as, as change agents. And so, um, you know, again, from the very start, these concepts were, they, they charged, it was an energy, uh, an essence um, that flowed through these institutions, and you could not be a student attending a Black college. Um, from the very inception in 1837 to, to even today, you could argue, uh, and not be exposed to these concepts of, again, race consciousness, idealism, cultural nationalism. I want to be very clear when I say idealism, because that's a very broad concept, but two of the, two of the words that I came up uh, um, across over and over again when I was doing the research for this book, and the, my primary resource um, was uh, student newspapers, looking through student newspapers and seeing, again, who these students were exposed to, what type of classes were they were taking, who were the faculty who were on these institutions, what were their thoughts as they began to write editorials. Two of the concepts that emerged over and over and over again were citizenship and democracy. I mean, they were constantly talking about citizenship and democracy, which, of course, struck me as odd because those were two of the things that Black folks were denied on a daily basis. But yet they were almost being drilled in it. Right. Again, as if in a, in a very disciplined way, they knew that they had to be trained within these ideas and concepts in order to articulate for the freedom dreams and the civil and human rights of, of Black folks. Jelani, one of the challenges that I think have been a part of the evolution of HBCUs, one of those challenges has been understanding their position within this broader structure of the United States, this broader framework of denying Black agency and denying Black brilliance and understanding that they have an obligation to affirm that, as you mentioned, and to promote citizenship, democracy, and connection. But to also understand 
that as an institution, they have to survive. And often that has meant having more conservative leaders who want students to promote the very best of the race, so to speak, was you know one of the, the phrases used, and engaging in a sort of respectability politics of we need to be more conservative in our demeanor because we want to show that, in fact, what we are fighting for is worthy. Do you see that tension playing out across HBCUs historically, or do you think that it depended on, you know, which schools or where they were located or who was leading them? Well, that, that last part is, is an excellent point, is that it definitely depended on, on the schools and the institutions and, and, and ge- geography and, and the politics of, of, of of the environments in which they were surrounded. Uh, but one of the other concepts that I use in the book um, is this idea of communitas. Um, it, it's a, a term which was originated by a cultural anthropologist and it simply gave me a different way to talk about space and the importance of space. And one of the things that I found very unique about HBCU life um, is that the space in itself was extremely complex. Right, is that you get this sort of, as I also argue in the book, sort of interstitial space, right? Like a space within a space. So at the top, you have administrators who are doing what they need to do and saying what they need to say in order to uh, uh, preserve the viability of the institution and, and court funding from both state legislators and private benefactors. But at the lower level, this is where you begin to see the work of the second curriculum really get, really beginning to take place. And, and it's a special thing to, to see a, a, a faculty member be able to close their doors, right, to, to, to their classroom and to begin to work, right, to, to, to embolden and affirm Black youth in their identity, uh, in charging them with uh, uh, um, a mission, right, to engage in, in uplifting the dignity and humanity of Black folks. And this is what took place, right? And so, yes, there's sort of this kind of public persona of, of, of Black college administrators having to toe that line of, of courting to, to conservatives uh, in order to preserve the financial, again, viability of the institution. But you also, below that, begin to see those same administrators specifically and deliberately hiring the type of faculty who would, would mold and shape uh, a very explosive and powerful generation of young student activists. And so you can look at people like, I'll fast forward to, uh, uh, to, to the 40s and 50s, you can look at people like uh, Jacob Reddick, um, you can look at people like Felton Clark, who's president at Southern University. You know, these were, were people who were extremely conservative in their public persona, uh, but on a, a personal level, um, they were race men. They were race women who were controlling and running these institutions. Very quickly, there's a great um, story I often tell about um, Mac Brown, who I'm sure, not Mac Brown, I'm sorry, but um, uh, Mac Jones, who I'm sure you're familiar oh, yes. with. The legendary uh, and, and, Dr. And, Mac and, Jones. Yes. Yeah, right. and, and, and I'll never forget sending my chapter on Southern University to, to, uh, to Mac Jones to take a look at prior to the book being published. And it was Mac Jones who told me uh, and, and really kind of warned me and admonished me. He said, you know what, be careful in how you treat Felton Clark, because I opened up that chapter by really kind of digging in a little bit on Felton Clark to the point where I'm, I'm dealing with some of the old um, um, stereotypical concepts of, 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 of Felton Clark being a, a Uncle Tom and, and a tyrant on campus. But it was Mac Jones who said, look, we thought of him as a race man. 
a race man. And he and he was. And this is how he molded us and shaped us. And which was very surprising because he also was one of the many students who got expelled from Southern University. Um, so but Mac Jones said, be careful in how you treat him because he has a very and that in itself reinforced the complexity of these institutions. Again, you do have leaders who were towing that line in order to preserve the, the space itself. Um, but they, th these same leaders also were cultivating the set curriculum behind the backs of, uh, of, of white um, uh, philanthropists and white uh, 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 city fathers who tried to, to close the, the purse and uh, hold the purse strings of these institutions. I think it's why it's so important to tell these stories, to affirm the nuance and the context, to think about the uh, conversations that are had within the house, if you will, versus the code switching and navigating that has to happen. And for our, our listeners who may not be aware, Dr. Mac Jones is a legendary political scientist, certainly had an impact on the trajectory of my career, and also the father to two or three pretty amazing children who have had this impact in literature, in sports, in business and community and affirm that legacy that you mentioned of, you know, he was expelled for being an activist and going against student code, but seeing that even in that experience, it was a way of disrupting notions of leadership. Jelani, we are in a somewhat different space in the United States today in 2021. In some ways we are. And Every couple of years, there's someone who will ask this question, why do we still need HBCUs? So I, you know, give the scholarly side eye whenever I hear that question asked. But I think in this political moment, it's important to address what those institutions continue to contribute, not just for black students, not just for black faculty, but for this country overall. What do you see as the, the place of HBCUs, given this history that you talk about and the sort of current moment? You know, one of the things that um, I think has, has really come to light over the last um, few years, when I say a few years, I mean, just even the last two, last year, last two years, last three years. And, and again, this is really being uh, even more exposed because of social media and whatnot. But, but black folks are exhausted. Black folks, it's tiring, right? To, to be a black person in America and to constantly have your humanity and, and your dignity challenged um, and, and robbed from you. Uh, and, and again, we see this at, at, on so many different levels um, playing out. And, and one of the things, again, that HBCUs have provided is simply a space where Black folks could breathe free, right? That, that Black folks could, um, again, be unapologetically Black, um, could be affirmed, could not, you know, could, could be in a space and, and, and go without having their humanity and their dignity and their intellect questioned uh, in a way in which it suggested that they never had humanity and intellect from the start. And I think that one of the things that we see taking place, uh, and, and you know, this very well may be a slow building movement, um, but we do see people acknowledging HBCUs and we do see a number of black youth who are exhausted by their experiences at predominantly white institutions and say, look, you know, maybe I should consider going to an HBCU. And I think last year or the year before last, we, there was some data that came out which suggested that um, there was an increase in enrollment at black colleges and a lot of people attributed that to the hyper intensive 
um, um, white supremacist rhetoric that was emerging from, from the Trump administration and in conservative America. And again, those concepts and ideas flow quite freely within the academy. Uh, and, and at a number of PWIs. And again, that could be an exhausting on a microaggressive level as well as, well as on a macroaggressive level to, to be a professor who teaches in that environment, to be a student who, who learns in that environment. Um, and, and so many black youth are saying, look, maybe it's time to reconsider HBCUs. And so I think that what that suggests is that black colleges are now more than ever necessary again, shelter in a time of storm, right? And clearly we are yet again experiencing um, the hostilities of, of a white supremacist fueled storm in America. And again, black folks are exhausted by that. And so many of them look to, to go to a more nurturing uh, and affirming space to where again, they don't have to deal with these daily questions of, of whether they should be there. Uh, and I think that's important. Um, to, to maintain spaces like that and to upkeep spaces like that and preserve spaces like that for future generations. We've seen this decline in enrollment in higher education overall, except, as you say, when it comes to HBCUs, this explosion in admissions applications, this explosion in students who are interested in transferring and, and professors who are exploring that space. Given this sort of broader uh, attention to HBCUs, there are a number of very wealthy donors who have now decided that they want to put their money into these institutions. And one of the things we also know is that, you know, the federal government and other entities were willing to fund particular types of programs at HBCUs. So in particular STEM programs to say this should be the priority. Do you have any concern about how that may change the character or the mission of HBCUs, if that is the, the sort of track that students are being exposed to based on funding? Or do you think that HBCUs can maintain that holistic view of what it takes to move community forward? No, I think that question is so spot on. And, and you know, I think you'll appreciate this, this, little, uh, this little story. I, I, one of the, the voices that I ran across in my research um, was a person who can really be considered the father of black political science. Um, and, and that is a gentleman by the name of Dr. Rodney Higgins, uh, who was the, the founding um, creator of, political, of the political science department at Southern University. Uh, and I, I ran across a speech that he gave in the 1950s at the National Social Sciences Academy or, or organization to or something to that extent. But he gave this speech in the 1950s, warning, warning that the writing was on the wall, that he was beginning to see a push away um, from supporting the humanities and supporting the social sciences at these institutions. Of course, the 1950s going into the 1960s, we see the beginning of sort of the face race uh, uh, age and uh, we're living in a, a post-nuclear uh, society. And so those concepts and ideas and technologies began to filter into, uh, as you said, um, higher education in general, not just black colleges. Uh, and, and so that begins to transform and change the curriculum. And it's Rodney Higgins who says, look, you know what, this is going to be troubling moving forward, particularly for HBCUs. Why? Because HBCUs had, again, um, provided a curriculum that um, provided training um, for Black students in humanities and social sciences. And without that training, right, how could we equip students 
um, to, to properly articulate the concerns and needs of, of Black people. And so moving forward, and this is something that I address in, in the epilogue of my book. In fact, the epilogue of that book deals with the corruption of, of the HBCU communitas and how things have in some ways devolved. And a lot of that has to deal with the promotion of STEM. And again, as I often say when I, when I give talks and interviews on this, this is not to, to denigrate STEM as a field, right? I think STEM and, and, and Black people in STEM are vitally important, uh, but the humanities and social sciences were the bedrock of the Black college experience. There's a great interview from um, Gwen Patton that I, I came across. Gwen Patton, of course, was a legendary activist out of Tuskegee, but in that interview, and I'm paraphrasing here, but she says, look, I was a student at Tuskegee in the 60s and we were exposed to compulsory classes that we had to take on African-American history. We were reading Malcolm X, we were reading uh, France Fanon, we were reading uh, um, you know, all of the, these concepts and ideas, being exposed to these concepts and ideas. We had the civil rights movement going on, we had the, the Vietnam going on. How could you not expect us to, to become deeply engaged? And I think that, that therein lies my concern for HBCUs moving forward is that if we consistently focus and promote STEM on these institutions, and of course, much of that is done because again, that's where the dollars are, right? That's where the money and people wanna fund STEM. But I think it's also vitally important that we fund social sciences and humanities. I think it's critically important that in the same way in which we have institutes that study race at predominantly white institutions, we need institutes that study race on HBCU campuses. I hearken back to the work of um, my friend and, and scholar, Dr. Derek White, who wrote his first book on the Institute of the Black World, the IBW, which was one of the first black think tanks to emerge in the black power era, which was founded on the camp, on, on the AU Center, right? The AUC, and so that's founded at Morehouse and Spelman and Clark Atlanta. So we wanna make sure that the HBCUs are continuing to carve out space um, such as that. Uh, to where we can think critically about the problems that confront African-Americans and that confront America. And as always, continue to try to provide some form of solution, some type of policy um, suggestions to, to address these issues moving forward. Jelani Favors is Associate Professor of History at Clayton State University. He's author of Shelter in a Time of Storm, How Black Colleges Foster Generations of Leadership and Activism. We'll post a link to the People's History of Dixwell walking tour that you heard earlier in the segment. It'll be at our website, ctpublic.org disrupted. Special thanks also to Damian Dillard, a 2020 graduate of Metropolitan Business Academy, whose voice you heard. He's also studying political science at Alabama A&M University, which is an HBCU. Our show is produced by Daniela Luna and Katie Tularski. Thanks to our intern, Jakaina Collier. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. We'll be back next week.